I want to recognize what looks to be some students up here on this side section. I don't know why you're in this service, but I want you to know we're glad you're here tonight. Can we welcome them and thank them for coming to the service tonight? <laughs> and I'm going to look up there about every 10 minutes and make sure y'all are still awake, okay? So that's, that's the goal. But thank you for being in the service tonight. It's always good to see younger people in here, and we're especially glad that you're here tonight. Now, if you remember last week, I had the handheld microphone, and I said to you, I think it's good sound, but the thing you're going to like about it is after a few minutes, my arm gets tired, right? It's going to be a short sermon. So last week, I only preached 22 minutes, which I know you loved that part, but I said to myself, they deserve better. They deserve longer. And so I've got this back on, and I'm ready to roll. So this is going to be good. Open your Bible, if you would, to the book of Philippians, chapter number four, and I want to show you a verse tonight that I know I've never preached on. I would say the odds are very, very likely that you've never heard a sermon on this because when we read it, we don't even think that there's a sermon there. And yet in this passage of Scripture, we read something very, very interesting. Now, Paul is in a Roman prison, and he's coming to the end of this letter of encouragement that he has written to his friends back in a town called Philippi, the Christians there, a church that he had founded. And at the end of the letter, beginning in verse 21 of chapter 4, he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. So he's just greeting everybody. That's not unusual. But look in verse 22. All the saints greet you. That's not unusual. But look, look at the next phrase. But especially those who are of Caesar's household. And then he goes on to say, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now, this phrase, especially those who are of Caesar's household, Paul is saying to those Christian friends back in Philippi, as he comes to the end of this letter, everybody with me sends their greetings, sends their best, friends that the people in Philippi probably even knew from Paul's ministry there. But then he says, especially those who are of Caesar's household, they greet you. They send their blessings. They send their love to you. Now, you say, John, what's so unusual about that? What's unusual about that is this question. How did Paul have a relationship with members of Caesar's household so much so that they would be wishing the Christians in Philippi, you know, well and blessing? Caesar was not the Caesar of this day was a man named Nero. And I want to talk more about him in a moment. But the, the Caesars in Rome were not Christian people. Uh, it, certainly not at this, at this time in history. And so the Caesar was a title for the Roman emperor. It was not a person's name. It actually originated as a person's name. Julius Caesar was the founder of the Roman Empire. And on March the 15th in the year 44 B.C., he was assassinated and so those who came after him wanted to honor his memory and honor his name. And so they took his last name, Caesar, and that became a title for the emperors in Rome. Julius Caesar was the founder, and then there were others. Now, by the time we come to the early 60s A.D., late 50s, early 60s, when Paul wrote this letter, a man named Nero was the emperor of Rome, and Nero was anything but a Christian. He was a sinful, wicked, 
evil man. In fact, history tells us that he was one of the worst criminals in the history of the world. I mean, he, he, was, he was not a follower of God at all. In fact, as I did some study today on Nero, I, learned, I knew it was bad news. But I learned some things that I did not know. Some of the sources, one of the sources I looked up today was PBS. And they had done an extensive uh, amount of research on Nero and on his, uh, on his rule and reign there in Rome. When he was about 17 years of, old, of age, he became the emperor of Rome. Uh, a man named Patrick Ryan said he murdered thousands of people, including his aunt, his stepsister, his ex-wife, his mother. He murdered his own mother. His wife, his wife became pregnant. He kicked her to death. Killed his wife and killed the baby that was in her. Killed his stepbrother. He was responsible, history tells us, for the great fire of Rome in the year A.D. 64. He was responsible for setting the city of Rome on fire, more than likely, so that he could have a bigger place to live, so that everything that burned down, he could just, that could become part of his palace. And after that fire, he blamed the Christians for the burning of the city of Rome and had Christians killed. He hung Christians. This is, this is horrific, but true. He hung Christians as human torches to light up his garden at night. Patrick Ryan goes on to say, he poisoned, beheaded, stabbed, burned, boiled, crucified, and impaled people. Thousands of Christians were starved to death, burned, torn by dogs, fed to lions, crucified, used as torches, and nailed to crosses. We also know from history that Nero was, was known for seducing married women and having affairs and committing adultery with them. If that's not bad enough, he was involved in homosexuality. On one occasion, he actually married, now think about this, he married a man who had been a slave. He married a man who had been a slave. And in that relationship, that man was considered the bride and Nero was considered the groom. In another marriage he had to a man, another homosexual relationship, he deemed himself the bride and that man the groom. He was involved in all kinds of immorality, not to mention things that he allegedly did to young boys. He liked to wander the streets, murdering innocent people at random. Now, this is the leader of Rome, and this is the kind of activities that he is involved in. He murdered most all of his close relatives. He had Peter and Paul both put to death. Peter crucified, as we know, upside down, and Paul beheaded just outside of Rome. At 30 years of age, after being the Caesar for 13 years, he took his own life. And so when we read Paul saying, uh, and by the way, those of Caesar's household, they greet you too. What is he saying? He's saying that in his time in Rome, he had gotten to meet people who were involved in Caesar's household. Maybe they were his servants. Maybe they were his family members. We don't know any more than what we read here. Now, I'm not implying that they were involved in all the sin that Nero was involved in. I'm not implying that at all. But I am saying this. That's who they worked for. And so in the day in which Nero reigned, all those things were accepted. 
I'm not saying accepted by all, but it was, I mean, when the leader of the country is doing those things, it is at the very least a common practice. And so here's Paul, he's in prison, and while there, he's meeting people from Caesar's household. And as they develop their relationship with each other through the, through the two years that he was in this imprisonment, uh, they see something in Paul that's different from what was in them. And he shares with them how they can be saved, and they became Christians. People who worked for a man as vile as Nero ended up giving their lives to Jesus Christ and becoming Christians, becoming friends of Paul. And it leads him to say, those who are in Caesar's household give you their greeting. Now, the first point I want to make tonight is this. The title of the message is, sometimes great things happen in the, in the least likely of places. And uh, the first point is, sometimes the least likely of people get saved. And that's what happened to these members of Caesar's household as they had come to know the Apostle Paul. They got saved. When Dr. Kendall was in town last weekend, my dad had picked him up from the airport, and I had picked him up later in the day to take him to have dinner. And so when we were driving to the restaurant that night to eat, uh, and to meet my dad there, Dr. Kendall says to me, he said, John, I told you the story years ago when I met Yasser Arafat. We were talking about this whole situation in Israel, Hamas, the Gaza, the whole thing. And he said, you know my story with Yasser Arafat. And I said, I, I do know that story. And, and he began to tell me that again, telling me some different insights on that. Well, the story is this. Years ago, through a friend and through the providence of God, uh, Dr. Kendall got to go to Ramallah, which is in the West Bank in Israel. Even if you could go to Israel today, like our group that was about to go to Israel and see all the sites, I'll tell you one place they were not going. They were not going to the West Bank, and they were not going to Ramallah because that would be a very unsafe area to go to. But Dr. Kendall had somehow been invited to go to Ramallah to meet Yasser Arafat. Now, Yasser Arafat was the president at that time of the Palestinian state. And he met him, and they developed a relationship. And as the relationship developed through the years, he was able to share Christ with Yasser Arafat. And he says in one of his books, and he said to me again the other night, he said, I won't know for sure until I get to heaven, but in my heart of hearts, I believe that Yasser Arafat got saved and that he is in heaven now. And he said, in fact, John, something that's interesting. He said, the reason that Hamas ever got started, the reason there is a Hamas, is because there were many in that movement who felt like Yasser Arafat was too soft, and they needed more strength, and they needed more energy, and they needed more aggression. And so this is how Hamas came to pass. But it made me think of Dr. Kendall today when I'm thinking about these in Caesar's household that even though Arafat and Nero, there's no comparison there. Arafat was not involved in what Nero was involved in. I don't mean, I'm not implying that at all. That wouldn't be true. But I am saying this, for a Christian minister to get in the West Bank to share Christ with the president of the Palestinian state is most unusual. And Arafat went on, as you know, to win the Nobel Peace Prize. He and two of the leaders of Israel won that peace prize. The three of them got it together. And I can't help but think that it was all because of the experience that he had with the Lord. But the point I'm making is tonight, sometimes the least likely of people get saved. And this is what had happened to the members of Caesar's household. You know the best thing that would happen in the Middle East? 
The best thing that could happen in that region would be the best thing that could happen here in South Texas if everybody over there got saved. That would solve the problem just like that. If people who don't know the Lord came to know the Lord, uh, the problem would be over just like that. But in order for people to come to faith in Christ, notice on your outline the second thing I printed there. Sometimes God puts his children in the least likely of places. God is sovereign, and God is in heaven arranging our circumstances. Many times when they don't make sense, and we don't understand what's happening or what God is doing or why God would allow us to be here, but providentially, God allowed Paul to end up in prison to meet these members of Caesar's household and so he could have the opportunity to lead them to Christ. I read something today. I can't remember who gave this quote, but I read it in my readings today that I thought was very good. Listen to this. Christians, like spiders find their way into the king's palaces. In Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 28, it says that spiders find their way into king's palaces. Well, so do Christians. And Paul is in a prison, but he's meeting those of Caesar's household, and uh, he's leading them to the Lord. And I'm saying that tonight to remind us, in order for people who don't know the Lord to come to know the Lord, sometimes God puts us in the least likely of places, places we wouldn't choose to be, Places we wouldn't want to be. I've heard so many times through the years of people in hospitals who don't want to be there. They don't want to be sick, and they, but yet they are there. And they're able, while there, to minister to other patients or to minister to the staff or, in some cases, lead people to the Lord. Certainly, we've heard stories about people in prison uh, having a similar experience. Nobody wants to be in prison and yet, while there, they get saved. They tell other people how to be saved, and they get saved. And so sometimes, it's not that God puts people in prison. Now, in Paul's case, I think he probably did. But God is sovereign, and sometimes people end up in the least likely of places. But it's an opportunity to be a witness for the Lord. Now, notice the next thing I put on your outline tonight. Because tonight, you may feel like circumstantially, you're in the least likely of places. Maybe at a new job. Maybe out of a job, but maybe in a new neighborhood, in a new house, a new circle of friends. You just, it's something, it's, everything's new, and you think, man, how could I be a witness for the Lord here? Well, the key is our own faith and our own attitude and our own verbal witness for Jesus Christ. Now, what I want to do here is if you could turn back to Philippians chapter 1, I want to mention five qualities that the Apostle Paul had that would have made these members of Caesar's household, that would have somehow drawn them to Paul, somehow made them think, whatever he has, that's what I need. And I want us to just look at some of these verses here tonight. First, the the question is, what did these people see in the Apostle Paul? What did they see in him? What was it that he had? Now, remember, when Paul wrote his letters, more often than not, in fact, I think this would be true all the time, He didn't actually write the letters. He had an amanuensis. He had a scribe. He had a friend. And Paul would be telling that person what to write down. In many of Paul's letters, he would sign his own name with his own hand at the end. But uh, So Paul, more than likely, as he's writing this letter, he is speaking to the person who's writing the letter for him. Well, while he's speaking, these... Roman guards, that's who would have been around Paul. They were guards. They were prison guards, at least to some extent. Maybe there were others there doing different things. But they could hear what Paul was saying. 
They could hear that. And so as they're hearing this, and not only hearing what he's saying, but looking at Paul, they're seeing some things in him that are most unusual. And the first thing they see is thankfulness. just wish you'd write that word down there somewhere, thankfulness. In verse number 3, Paul says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. He was thankful. Now, this is an unusual attitude to have in prison, one of thankfulness, and yet he was thankful, and I'm sure that got their attention. A second thing that Paul had, a second quality, he had confidence. Confidence first in his own salvation. Look in verse number 6. Being confident, he uses the word, of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul knew that he was saved. And Paul had a confidence that he was saved. You know, it's possible to be saved and not have that full confidence and that full assurance that you're saved. I did much reading last night by Spurgeon and things he had said on this topic. And he's making a distinction, the great, British, the great English preacher, making a distinction between salvation and the assurance of salvation. Uh, you have to be saved to have assurance, but just because you're saved, that doesn't guarantee that you're always going to have assurance. And Paul, or John rather, when he wrote 1 John, said as much in chapter 5 and verse 13. He said, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. These were Christians John was writing to. That you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know. So it's possible to be saved and, and not know that you're saved. In my readings of Spurgeon last night, I read things about him that I, did, I myself had never read. How even as pastor of uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle there in London, there were times when bouts, I knew he would have bouts of depression, but I never knew that it got so bad that he questioned and doubted his own salvation, his own relationship with God. And he said in some of his writings that on one occasion he took a holiday from the church, a break from the church to try to lift up his, for his spirits to be renewed. And he went to Wesley's uh, Chapel there in London, England, and he just went to a service. And can you imagine whoever the pastor was at Wesley's Chapel to step up one day to preach and you sit out, you look in the audience and there sits Charles Spurgeon taking a week off from the tabernacle to attend a service. And he said while there, that, that Methodist preacher was preaching about Jesus and about the blood and about salvation and our righteousness is in him and it's not of us. And Spurgeon said as he heard the truth of the gospel being preached, his heart was touched and he began to weep and he knew that he was saved. But he's a man, pastor of the church. And his point was, if Satan can cause a Christian to lose confidence in whether or not they're saved, he has done great damage to our, to our joy. He's, he's taken our joy completely and our peace, but he's also damaged our witness. Now, here's Paul, and I'm not saying Paul never had that struggle, but he's not having it here. He said, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it, until the day of Jesus Christ. Talking about salvation and by implication, his own. Confident in his salvation, but also confident in God's sovereignty. Look in verse 12. He said, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident, by my chains are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And so Paul was saying, you know what? What has happened to me 
is actually having a positive effect instead of a negative effect. The first thing is, these people who are guarding me, I've developed a relationship with them. They've asked questions. I've told them about Jesus. Many of them have been saved. And not only that, my other Christian friends who are with me here, their faith has been strengthened. And so he had that confidence. You see, if you have confidence in your life, first of all, that you're saved. You just know that you're saved. And, uh, and if the devil rattles your cage or when he rattles your cage and gets you to question that or worry about that. I was reading earlier today about a, a man named David Brainerd who was, is probably the, one of the, well, he may be the most influential missionary in world history. Became a tremendous missionary to the Indians. And Brainerd's testimony was this, that before he was converted, he hated God, not hated God, he was angry with God. And the reason he was angry with God is because as he read the Bible, it was obvious to him that God required a perfect righteousness. And he knew that he was anything but perfect. And the harder he tried, the more he became aware of his own imperfections. And he also knew that God, or he thought anyway, that God required a perfect faith. And he knew his faith wasn't perfect. Sometimes he doubted and questioned. He didn't have perfect faith. And then one day the light came on and he came to see the only perfect person who has ever lived is Jesus Christ. That Jesus is the perfection of righteousness. And Brainerd said when he began to understand that Jesus was the perfection that God required, he said, God, I need Jesus to be my substitute. I need him to extend mercy to me so that I'll put my, and I put my faith in him. And Brainerd was amazingly saved, gloriously saved. And out of the, the, the shackles being lifted, you know, just broken off from him, it's out of that that he's able now to literally go around the world as a missionary and became, as I said, one of the most effective missionaries who ever lived. But it all happened when he first became confident that he was saved. So tonight you have to think and ask yourself, do you have confidence and assurance that you're saved, and not only that, confidence and assurance that God is sovereign, that God is in control, that God, wherever you are, that's where God has you to be right now. Confidence. We need, and that, this is the thing that is always under attack in the life of the believer, our confidence, our faith. It's why God says that, that our faith is more precious to him than gold. It is the thing that Satan that he focuses in on because if we lose our confidence either in our salvation or in God's sovereignty, uh, you talk about a cloud of depression or heaviness or downness. And I've been reading the last two nights, I've been reading in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. And three times in those two Psalms, the psalmist put, put this question out there. It's talking to himself. He said, why are you downcast, O my soul? And why so disquieted within me? And then he answered his own, he told himself what to do. He said, hope in God. Hope in God. But see, when, our, when we lose our confidence and we're focusing on our own unrighteousness instead of Christ's righteousness, I love these songs tonight about the blood. It's the blood of Jesus. In my reading today, in my New Testament reading, I was in Hebrews 9, and it's talking about the blood of Jesus. And it said the blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience. And it is his blood that gives us that confidence. If our faith is in the blood of Jesus, then we have absolutely nothing to fear. You still listen? Say amen. All right. Now, not only did Paul have thankfulness and confidence, but he also had what I'm calling an obsession with Jesus. 
That word obsession, um, normally we use that in the negative. Some of us here tonight are OCD, you know, obsessive compulsive. And we, 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 that's, that's not a good thing. But Paul had obsession with Jesus, and that is a good thing. Look in verse 21. He says, for, me to, uh, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Can you imagine those Roman guards listening to Paul tell his uh, secretary what to write down? And he said, write these words. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. They must have thought, man, this, this something about this Jesus changing his life. He has joy and thank, thanksgiving and, and he's confident and there's something about Jesus. But look in verse 27. He also had holiness. Paul said, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come to you or see you and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He was whole, Paul was living a, 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 not a perfect life, but a clean life. There was no sin. There was no ongoing sin in Paul's life. He was, that set him apart from all those descriptions I gave about Nero. Paul's the opposite of that. And these people from Caesar's household, look at that, say, man, this guy, this guy's different. And then the last thing, and this is too wordy probably to write down, but let me just say it. The belief that as long as you are walking with Jesus, whatever happens to you is part of God's plan for your life. Now, if you're not walking with Jesus and you go out here and do something stupid, sinful, you can't say, well, this is part of God's plan for my life. No, that wasn't part of God's plan. That was, that was part of your plan or somebody else's plan. But that wasn't part of God's But if we are walking with Jesus, seeking to please him, Whatever happens to us is indeed part of God's plan for our lives. In verse 29, Paul said this, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. And so sometimes the least likely of people get saved. You may have a a family member or a friend or a child or a grandchild or a co-worker or a neighbor. And you think, man, I don't think they're ever going to get saved. Well, sometimes the least likely of people do. I'll tell you this. When I was preparing this sermon today, I was convicted on something. As I thought about what's happening in Israel. And the terrorists, I mean, everybody is condemning Hamas and that's a terrorist organization. So that's, that, that goes without saying. But you know, I got convicted today. I have not prayed for anybody in Hamas to be saved. I haven't prayed that. Not one, I have not offered up one prayer. I haven't even thought about it. I hadn't even thought about praying for that. And as much as I love the Jewish people, and as much as we realize they're the apple of God's eye, and they're in the land where God wants them to be, the fact is we need to be praying for the Jewish people to be saved too. And I haven't prayed that. I mean, I've got some friends. I have prayed for some of my Jewish friends' salvation through the years. But I think it would be a wonderful thing if, if we started praying for Jewish people who don't know the Lord to be saved, for Muslim people who don't know the Lord to be saved, for terrorists to be saved. If what Dr. Kendall says is true, and I, I find it, I believe it to be true, that for some reason, Yasser Arafat had a softening of the heart and ended up winning 
the Nobel Peace Prize. Would it be amazing if in our day and time, people of Hamas, terrorist people, Muslims who are not terrorists, Arab people who are not terrorists, but they're not Christians, if they turned to the Lord and got saved, and then Jewish people who, even though they are the apple of God's eye and, and God's chosen people in that respect, but unless they receive Jesus, they're not saved. Wouldn't it be a great thing one day if we got home from work and turned the uh, news on and you had Benjamin Netanyahu and you had, as the Jewish leader, and then you had other leaders, Arab Muslim leaders, and maybe even some who had promoted terrorism, and they're sitting around a table shaking hands loving each other, and we're all wondering, what in the world happened there? And then later on we find out, Netanyahu received Jesus. These Muslims received Jesus. These terrorists received Jesus. And you say, John, that ain't gonna, that's not going to happen. Well, it may happen or it may not happen, but let me ask this question. Do you believe that it can happen? <laughs> I mean, it can happen. I, I would be the first to admit that that would be like a big deal. I mean, that'd be like a really big deal. would be passing out Nobel Peace Prizes for the next 50 years to the, everybody involved in that. But, you know, I think if Paul were over there now, locked up in some cell, whether he was in Gaza City or on the Strip there or back in Israel, I think Paul would be looking at this a little differently. I think Paul would be saying, you know what? What we really need here, everybody knows we need peace. And, you know, but what we really need here is for the Prince of Peace to reveal himself and for those who are living like this. And I'm not saying the Israel's doing anything wrong. I'm just saying they need, they need Jesus is all I'm saying. They've turned to the Lord and they've been saved. I think th- th- this is what we should be praying. I'm going to go home tonight and pray for all those people to be saved. And I would encourage you to do that. And it's not just people in the Middle East. It may be somebody in your house or on your street or these students up there who are still awake, by the way, after all this talking, you're still with me. Maybe a friend of yours, somebody you go to school with, somebody you think, man, that person, they don't give God the time of day. They wouldn't, they, they're, not coming, they're not coming to church. They don't want to talk about God. They don't believe in God. Well, sometimes God saves the least likely of people. And I think we at least need to pray that God would. And not only that, sometimes God places those of us who are already saved in the least likely of places. And sometimes we end up in a spot in life and we say, God, now why do you have me here? We have to remember this. It's not just about us. It's about the people that could be around us. And that doesn't mean everybody you meet you're going to lead to the Lord. Or it doesn't even mean everybody you meet you're going to be t- they're going to tell them how to be saved. You know, it depends. Sometimes we plant a seed. Sometimes we water a seed. Sometimes we reap a harvest. It depends on the setting. We have to be sensitive to how the Spirit is leading us. But I'll tell you one thing. If we start praying tonight for the Middle East to get saved, uh, I think God would honor that prayer. I told you you a few weeks ago, a few months ago, in one of my sermons, I had read about a, a man had a dream. I can't remember which Muslim country he was in, but he had a dream. And he, and he said in his dream, 
a man in a white robe came to him and was offering him forgiveness and salvation and peace. And he shared that with somebody else. And, 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 and whatever this country was, a lot of Muslim people were saying, we've had the same dream. A man in a white robe is coming to us. And he's telling us how to be forgiven of, our, of our, everything we've done wrong. And they even put in this particular city, they put a, mark, a sign up in the prominent area. And it said, if you have had a dream where you saw a man in a white robe, please call this number. And I didn't plan on saying this. It's all documented. It's remarkable. So I told that story. And, and, and Muslims, did you know more Muslims are being saved around the world right now than any time in, history, in the history of the world? I told that story here one Sunday morning. And after the service, a man came up to me, a friend of mine. He's, he grew up Muslim and uh, started coming to our church. First name is Hussein, a fine young man. I did his, he and his wife's wedding several months ago. He, he came to the family room one day. I was in there talking to other people. He said, when you get finished, I have something to tell you. I said, okay. And I got finished. He said, I'm not going to keep you long, but I want to tell you something. He said, that story you told about a man in a white robe appearing in a dream is true. He said, I had, a, I had a dream. And he said, I saw a man in a white robe. And I, and I said, what did he look like? And he began to describe as best as he could remember the specifics. And I said, uh, what did he say to you? He said, he said to me, seek me and you will know. And he said, I was already seeking for peace, but I didn't have it. And I just assumed that that man in the white robe was Jesus. And when he said, seek me and you will know, the only way I knew to seek him was to go to a church. And I didn't know what church to go to, but I drive back up and down Fairmont all the time, and I've seen this church. I don't know anybody in this church. Nobody has invited me to this church. But I said, I'm going to that church on Sunday and seek the man in the white robe so I will know. And he said, I came to First Baptist three weeks in a row, and I heard the teaching, and I heard the Bible, and after three weeks, I understood about Jesus and his death on the cross, and he shed his blood, and he was buried, and he rose again, and that if we will repent, ask forgiveness, turn from our sins, and receive him, that we could be saved. And he said, John, on that third week, Y'all prayed that prayer. I prayed that prayer. You told us to stand up. I stood up. Not long after that, I got baptized. Then God brought a girl into my life, and now we've been married. And he said, I'm telling you, the man in the white robe is appearing to those of us who grew up in the Muslim world. It's a powerful story. And so, I say this. Um, we should pray for those in the Muslim world. Hindu world, the Buddhist world. We should pray for atheists. We should pray for those in the Christian world who themselves aren't Christians. <laughs> that God would open their eyes and that they would seek Jesus so that they could know him in a personal way. So that they, like Paul, could say, whatever happens, I have the confidence that when my heart beats for the last time, I'll leave this earth and go to a better place because my righteousness is all wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. God does require a perfect righteousness, and he has supplied that in Jesus. That is the gospel.
that if we transfer our faith from us to him, that we're saved. And so tonight, it may be that God has brought you here to this service tonight, and you yourself don't have peace with God. Maybe one of the students up there. I don't know, because I don't know you. Maybe tonight, God has brought one of you or several of you or others here tonight into this room, and it's the least likely of places. That's what I said when I was kidding with y'all at the beginning. I said, you know, this is a, this is a service. We're, I'm glad you're here. I hope you keep coming to this service. But I'm saying, this is unusual that you have 10 students their age in this service. But it may be tonight that they're in the least likely of places, and they're hearing and, and being told tonight how they can Find peace and forgiveness and salvation. And it may be tonight that somebody else is in that boat. And so with our heads bowed and eyes closed tonight, if you would say, John, somehow this, somehow this sermon resonates with me tonight. I can't even put my finger on why. But somehow this sermon resonates with me tonight. And I need that peace. Maybe you're like David Brainerd before he was saved. You... You feel like, I, I just don't measure up. You know what? Realizing that we don't measure up is the first step to getting saved. Because as long as we're trying to measure up, we're failing to look to Jesus. The perfection of righteousness, of rightness. Everything that we're not. If you would like the man in the white robe tonight to come and live in your heart? Would you pray this prayer, Lord Jesus? I need to be saved. I hadn't even thought much about it till right now, but I need to be saved. And I'm asking you right now, Lord Jesus, come into my heart, forgive my sins, and make me a Christian. God, I ask you to save me. I trust you to save me. Right now, I trust the blood of Jesus to wash my sins away. I trust him. I mentioned Spurgeon earlier. When Spurgeon was a young fellow in his early teenage years, he had no peace with God. And one Sunday morning, it was snowing in London, but he wanted to go to church, but he couldn't get to the church he normally went to. So he went to a Methodist church. And there weren't many people there. And the, the Methodist minister got up to preach. And he looked around the room. And he was preaching that day, Isaiah 45, 22, where God said, Look to me and be saved. And that preacher pointed out Spurgeon from the pulpit. And he said, Young man, you look to be very miserable. What you need to do this morning is look to Jesus and be saved. And Spurgeon said that day, for the first time in his life, he looked to Jesus for his salvation instead of looking to himself. And he was converted. He was saved. The greatest, most influential Baptist preacher who ever lived was converted in a Methodist church. The least likely of places. The man preaching was not even the pastor. He was a deacon. The least likely of people. But the Spirit of God orchestrated it. And he may be doing that tonight.